I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Do you know, guys, I'm not even going to introduce who we've got today. There's no point because we'll probably be here all day. But we have the awesome, the amazing, the fabulous, ready for it, <gasps> Alex Churchill. So I you a bottle of vodka now, right? Yes, totally, because <laughs> I have just just bigged you up massively. Because today we're talking about the Somme. We're going down the World War One route. Alex is going to tell us about the Battle of the Somme, and she's going to educate me. So uh, are you all looking forward to this? Because I am, kind of, ish. Not of. really. No. <laughs> no, but I'm going to know. Seriously, guys, she actually, she's a great speaker, right? So she can teach you about anything and everything at the end of the day. So I think we should get on with this because otherwise we'll be chatting here for all blooming days. So listen, talk to us. Why is there a battle on the song in 1916? Um, yeah, first of all, you need to cover why we need to go out and take the offensive in 1916. Um, because some people say like, well, why would you bother when it's going to cost all these men and it's going to be bloodthirsty? I mean, you didn't really know how to go about it in trench warfare, but the answer is because we've become the aggressor. So Germany has invaded France and Belgium and plonked herself down in it and dug trenches and sat there. The Germans really aren't losing the war if they just sit there and do nothing. Um, the impetus is on France, Belgium, um, later America, Britain, um, and Russians on the Western Front and colonial troops. The emphasis is on them to push the Germans out. So yes, we were always going to attack them. Uh, why is it the Somme in 1916? Uh, because of the French is the short answer. Uh, 1915 had been an absolute disaster. So the war starts at the end of 1914. 1915 is basically spent in cocking things up. Um, you've got to get to grips with training massive armies that you weren't really prepared to have. You've got to get to terms with logistics. You've got to get to terms with manufacturing war material um, and ammunition. And 1915 is very ad hoc and they do learn things in 1915, but pretty much across the board for the allies in 1915, it ends up being pretty crap. Um, so 1916 dawns and then you've suddenly got all the men are trained well they're not trained as well as they should be in some cases but you've got all the men in uniform you've got them ready to fight you've got all the ammunition you want um, and you're ready to roll basically so that's why in 1916 all the allies are sitting there at the beginning of the year and at the end of 1915 rubbing their hands and going right we're going to give them what for when you look at 1916 and you think, how did the British army end up doing this massive 
concentrated effort at the Germans uh, by accident, really. So we're, we're on the Somme because that's where the French want us to be. The French have got it in their heads that Britain is always shirking her share of the hard work. France had an absolutely monstrous opening 15, 16 months of war. I think it's upwards of a million casualties. They are being bled white on the battlefields and they want Britain to pick up more slack. And in short, we picked the Somme because that's where they want us to fight because it's where the two armies join and they think they can keep an eye on us. Now, when they were planning the Battle of the Somme, the two armies were going to take massive parts each in it, and it was going to be a joint effort. Uh, the French end up paying a much, much smaller part, and that's because the Germans do their own attack in February 1916 and cock the plans up. So the French are so hard pushed at Verdun, further south, that, um, well, well, southeast, that um, the British end up taking a much, much bigger role in the summer offensive on the Somme than was envisaged when it was first planned. It's all about the French, though, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah, it's their country as well. But yeah, don't get me wrong, some of the planning was atrocious and the, the way it was played out. Um, but like I said, they're all learning on the hoof. But the French... Um, wanted to keep an eye on us so we would rather or so Haig who's in charge by this point would rather have attacked up near Ypres in Belgium and kept it closer to the channel he always thought that was a better place uh, the Somme had been quite a quiet sector until then uh, but that's all about to change but they get there and um, the Germans have had all this time to dig in and they're looking at really entrenched difficult like three lines of positions not just three lines, but three sets of defences going all the way back. Uh, it's not an easy task. Um, if you look, if you were to look at it, I think on a strategy basis, you wouldn't have. We would definitely not have picked it. But there's a certain element of give and take with the French, and one of the things we take is this insistence that we fight down there. You just said horrible because there was there was a massively horrible day uh, on mm. the first of July. But you and Holmes, you hardly talk about it in the book. Why is that? Uh, because the battle lasted for 141 days and when we went to plan the book and decide what we wanted to cover um, we wanted it to be a commemorative book for the whole Battle of the Somme so we chose one man who died on each day for the whole of the 141 days and which meant obviously that we couldn't overdo it with the 1st of July which so many people do. That's nice actually you get a chance yeah. to give everybody a voice at the end of the day. Yeah, because it went on for three and a half months, so we just decided straight away that rather than get bogged down, it would get no more, well, no more attention than any other day on the battlefield, that this was supposed to be about the entire battle and not just the opening day. Wow. I actually did not know that that is how long that battle was. So we've got to start at the beginning. Talk to us about that first day. You can't really. I, this this first day has become emblematic for us. Uh, this day where Britain has sixty thousand casualties, twenty thousand odd dead. Uh, but it's not one day. It's you really have to look at the first four days in bulk: the first, second, third, and fourth of July, because you cannot put all of those casualties on the 1st of July. You don't know how long men were lying out in no man's land or waiting for treatment. And there's, there's scores of men that just disappear into the abyss. You don't know exactly when they died. Really, you're looking... I mean, most of them were nearer the beginning, but anything up to the 4th. I mean, I've got guys it's written down that they're the 1st of July casualties. And I know they didn't really die till the 4th. It's very unlikely they died before the 4th of July because of the eyewitness accounts I've got. So really, you need to look at those first four days in a chunk and take the casualty dates 
with a bit of a pinch of salt because there's not really a way to nail down that every single one of them passed on before midnight on the 1st of July. So the first, um, first attack, which does start on the 1st of July, it's on a really long front and it's the biggest thing we've ever done. Um, and they do, if they feel like they don't acknowledge that, they have more than 3,000 guns down there. They prepare for it. But when you've got a front as long as the one they've been allocated, 3,000 guns wasn't enough, really. It sounds like a colossal amount, and it was, but it's still not enough to have paved the way for the infantry by trashing the German defences everywhere along the line. It was more successful in some places than others, but uh, really the preparation ended up leaving a lot to be desired, and some of that was because they hadn't scaled up enough uh, and they hadn't put enough guns in and things like that. And, and then there's the weather. Uh, it's, a, it's a running, not even a joke by 1918, that every time the British or the French try and make an attack, the weather seems to be, um, God seems to be on the German side because the weather just craps all over us. So it had been raining, they'd put the battle back uh, and they eventually kick it off on the 1st of July. And it's kind of mixed results. Uh, what you don't hear so much about is that down the southern end of the British front, they're actually, they do okay. I mean, let's just write off the initial plan, which was to smash the Germans along the entire line, overrun their positions and end the war, because that was a, that was a shit plan. That was never going to happen. Um, when you looked at the German defences and you looked at the numbers involved, it was never going to happen. Uh, so you have to immediately reduce your expectations. Once you do that, not so bad down the far south. I mean, casualties are still high, but they actually make some progress. Um, however, at the northern end of the battlefield, that's the one where you get... Um, the PALS units and the huge casualty figures amongst battalions and, and the stories of every street in a small town in Lancashire having a casualty and stuff like that. So um, they do all right in the southern end. They, they actually achieve something which sometimes gets overlooked. Uh, and But from sort of the middle northwards to the, the um, Hamel area, then and Beaumont Hamel, then it's pretty awful. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. How many wounded were there in the first four days? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And wow, I think so that, yeah, so it's just... I mean, there were worst instances of not being prepared to deal with your wounded in the First World War. We were talking about it the other day with George Morton Jack, weren't we, about Mesopotamia, about how there was no lines of evacuation along yeah. the Tigris, and these guys just lay out there and bled to death and died, boiled to death in the desert and died in agony for want of medical treatment. Um it's not like they haven't set up for it, but there's very few ways to get forward without being spotted by a German. So how are you suddenly supposed to get thousands back? And I'll give you our guy from the 3rd of July, and he's, another, he's an example of what I'm talking about with the 1st or the 4th of July. So Oswald um, Webb dies on the 3rd of July, but his mortal wound is right at the beginning on the 1st when he goes over the top. So he dirt. He's at the northern end of the battlefield I'm talking about. So he's with uh, the Ulster Division, which means he's up round Teepval. As they're preparing to go over top, a shell bursts over the assembly trenches, wounding him. Um, so he never advanced towards the German. On all the routes back and in all the trenches, there are hundreds of wounded lying um, alongside the dead bodies. 
the roads going back were packed solid with men struggling to get away, limping away, the walking wounded, with ambulances trying to get back with people like Oswald Webb who are in a severe condition. One sunken road, so it afforded some cover on the way to Hamel, became known as Bloody Road because there were so many corpses piled up on it on the 1st of July. One, so there's an artillery guy left an account who's in that area and he said it was a terrible sight to see the wounded coming in hundreds in wagons, motor lorries or anything they could get. Those that could possibly crawl at all had to get from the trenches to the dressing station which was about three miles as best they could. Each time we were coming back from the guns with empty ammunition wagons we packed as many wounded on as we could as we passed the dressing station on our way back but a lot of them were too badly wounded to stand the jolting of the wagon and preferred to go on their own. Um, so Oswald's route takes him via an aid post, uh, probably in Teatval Wood or, or Teal, then on to Martinsart where his stretcher can go into a motor ambulance and then back to a dressing station at Forceville. Uh, shortly after 8.30am a runner had turned up at Forceville saying that there were three to four hundred men lying on the battlefield requiring assistance and there's just anything that they can throw forward to get these men back. The staff at Forceville are so disbelieving of these numbers that they telephoned a command post to confirm them and then they're just bracing themselves frantically. They've got a motorcycle rider off to secure additional morphia, six stretcher parties left to bring in as many men as they could and the numbers were absolutely overwhelming. So as the men arrive, the doctors are trying to look at each one, set the dead to one side, check the others, uh, leave the hopeless cases. Um, they sent those to a tent where the prescription was painkillers and cigarettes to make them comfortable. Uh, men were assigned to see to them on that basis. Um, and one of them said it was a terrible thing to light a cigarette for a soldier and see him die before he finished it. All we did was redress a wound if he needed it. And if somebody needed a bit of tidying up, we did that as well. Um, Oswald made it back to a specialist uh, centre that were doing stomach wounds, uh, which were especially tricky. And he did make it back for an operation, but um, he died as a result of his wounds. Um, and the Ulster Division is, is one where they suffer huge casualties on the 1st of July. So that's one man's journey back. But yeah, it's utter chaos. I was actually going to say, I was thinking, oh, wow, you, you said oh, he got back, he got back to have surgery. I'm thinking oh my God, a really lucky guy. And then you pulled out the, the big guns and said, well, he died because of his injuries. I was like, oh, well. well yeah, that, we had, we've actually held in our hands the letter he wrote back to his 12-year-old son the day before the battle. We got to know his family quite well. They don't live too far from me. And he's actually, he's the one on the front cover. He, it was such a striking, unusual portrait they had of him glancing downwards like that, that um, we used him on the front cover. But yeah, his family are absolutely lovely and they're so proud that he's got a write-up in this book. Because it was quite hard to try and nail his exact route back um, as a wounded man, but it, was, it really helped centre it for us to look at the, to settle one entry completely around trying to deal with the wounded after the 1st of July but does that give you a better idea of why the 1st to the 4th is such a shit show and why you can't really take the numbers as solid yeah I mean I'm, I'm imagining all of this in my head as you're saying literally bodies being piled up and people dying dying from from no medical assistance it's crazy mm. so tell me oh. right what what happens next after all of this so they kind of slow down um <clears throat> after the first couple of days and take stock uh, some they they pick out some tactical points that and there's things like mammoth's wood which will become of massive um significance for the welsh because the poor welsh division is thrown in there and basically ceases to exist but essentially what's happened is 
you, you've got a disparity because do you get the people at the north to try and match what the people of the south have already achieved and bring the line up so it's all one line or do you go where it's good and keep going in the south which one would you do well i don't know don't ask a non-military historian the <laughs> they do the south so they go they go in the south and that's where mammoth's wood is, uh, wood is so they go on that they go on Mont montaban and there's some sort of uh, not derogatory but piecemeal fighting on certain local objectives and before on the 14th of july the next big offensive which is the battle of Byzantine ridge so you remember i told you originally that there were three sets of german positions Byzantine ridge is the second set of german positions so in this area they've got across the first and they're now going in for the second i also mentioned how spread out the guns were on the opening day now Byzantine ridge is more successful but this is because 66 percent of the artillery that was used at the beginning of july on the opening day is registered for Byzantine ridge on just five percent of the original targets so it's a much higher artillery concentration to get it ready these are objectives on the 14th of july this is how outlandish the original plan was they were supposed to be taken on the 1st of july so that's the reality check that the british army has had on the Somme in the first two weeks of the battle and what it is is a well-planned triumph on a very limited front but in the grand scheme of things already what i'm telling you about going for a certain wood or a certain ridge do you see how far away they're already getting from this idea of just smashing the germans off the battlefield and winning the war in the summer yeah they're already scaling back and scaling back their expectations it wasn't this the whole point of winning the war and and, and it hasn't really happened like pushing the german back it hasn't happened what's the alternative the alternative is that they just stop and they've got all these men ready and all this ammunition ready and for this campaign and it hasn't gone to plan in the first four days but you can't just give up and go home like i said we've got to be the aggressors we have to try and push the germans out of france so they're gonna keep going but the upshot of it is that already it's clear that they're not well, to, to us in hindsight, especially, perhaps it was a bit longer for them, but it's already dawning on people that you're not going to be able to finish the war in 1916. But Byzantine Ridge is okay. That's, uh, I mean, it's still incredibly costly. It still costs about 10,000 men off the strength of the army in wounded, missing and uh, dead. So, I mean, you're talking about a huge cost for minimal gains, but the alternative doesn't exist, which is brutal and horrible but this is the nature of this industrial warfare you can't just go home um but they haven't yet learned how to go forward without massive casualties like this this is a, you will not see come even by 1917 you would not see this over the top in a big long line exposed to enemy artillery fire that's already disappearing they're already starting to attack in worms one behind the other in 1917 but at this point it's very early in the learning curve so everything they do gain is done at a huge cost bit of trial and error really at the end of the day isn't it yeah which in it that's what it is and you have to do it because no one knows how to fight this kind of warfare but unfortunately every error costs the lives of these poor guys fighting the battle which is what's so awful so is it going well now not really. <laughs> Late July and then August is a farce in my mind. And there's there's bits and pieces to go on, but Delville Wood is a, a classic one. So Delville Wood, that's um, 
South Africa's worst moment. So at Delville Wood, about 3,200 South Africans march in to try and win this wood and um, 700 come out and file past their commanding officer who's crying his eyes out. Wow. Uh, Delville Wood is just the epitome of one of these trivial in the scheme of what was originally planned trivial objectives which becomes this bone of contention and ends up costing like a horrific amount of lives so after the south africans depart guys are still flung into this for weeks so you have to stop don't even envisage it as being a wood in the kind of way that you do because there are no trees um it is so i'll try and describe it for you using some of the stuff from our chelsea book because we wrote about um the footballers' battalion, who went in shortly after the South Africans. So, torn and blasted um, by the awful avalanche of shells, which is just coming down continuously. All of the British guns are shelling Delverwood, and the Germans are shelling it as well. Uh, so, I mean, they're not discriminate about whether they're killing their own men or not. The whole thing is just done, the whole thing is under fire by the guns in that area. Um, gaping shell holes everywhere. So, a tree gets blasted apart and everything comes down on the floor. So try walking on all the foliage. It's impossible to try and make your way along. Um, all the troops are mixed up together. Uh, so there's lurking snipers, um, just mangled tree stumps uh, and very little cover. So people are crouching in these holes and hiding under branches and things while the shells continue to come down and parts of the wood patrols and even single men of the opposing forces are stalking and hunting each other um, and fighting hand to hand. Uh, there's dead bodies everywhere, bits of dead bodies ev everywhere and the pungent odour of gas as well. So yeah, it's utter carnage um, and it's not till, so it's, I think it's the beginning of September, my brain is going to sleep but yeah i think it's the beginning of september before you can finally say that delville wood is in british hands so that's one wood and then like i said mamet's wood it's a similar thing for the welsh a few days earlier um they start that account uh, that one doesn't take quite as long but it's a similar scene inside there's also trones wood so it's sort of anywhere where the germans can be hiding and need to be flushed out becomes like this and then all of the villages up and down the line they've kind of turned into fortresses so they've reinforced um cellars they've they're underground um, everything standing has been blown away by artillery fire so there's rubble everywhere so trying to flush the length of the line clear of enemy troops becomes really bogged down and gritty and attritional um, and through july into august it's all about taking just anything you can i just i can't imagine any of that i mean i can as you're telling me but it's just it's unbelievable uh, just listening so when you read the august stuff that's the part where you're like what are you doing for the sake of that, you're committing that many troops and suffering that many casualties. There seems to be a distinct lack of comprehension going on in August. That, I think, is, is the bit I look at the most and just think, why? Why did you not just stop and take stock? Which eventually is what they do um, in that they get themselves ready and then there's another offensive within the Battle of the Somme, um, Fleur's Corselettes, which happens in the middle of September. So something happens on the 15th of September that's important for the future of warfare, doesn't it? What is it? Uh, so yeah, this, uh, this attack at Fleur's Corselettes is the first time tanks are used. 
Mm, so, and it's a big secretive um, event. So what it effectively does is change the face of a modern battlefield forever on this date. So um, they'd been using Caterpillar tractors to move heavy artillery pieces around since 1908. But the idea of a tank um, had been around, but no one had really taken it seriously. I mean, Churchill was a big early proponent of them. Um, but a determined major named Swinton um, had been trying to get the idea of a machine gun destroyer off the ground since 1914. Churchill's pushing in the Navy, obviously. Research begins, but grinds to a halt. By the summer of 1915, though, um, certain big names have started to hear about it, and Swinton gets attention from GHQ and the War Office. So by February 1916, his brainchild has then undergoing secret trials at Hatfield in front of Kitchener and high-ranking politicians. And actually, I'm sure the king goes up to that. The king ends up loving tanks. He tries to take a joyride in them whenever he possibly can, and it really embarrasses Queen Mary. But anyway, they have a 100 of the prototype ordered. And in May, um, what they are at the beginning is just a heavy branch of the machine gun corps. That's where they put them into the organisation of things. Mm. And it's supposed to be six companies of 20 25 tanks with 28 officers and 255 men in each. So all of this is unknown to the enemy because the Germans have completely missed the boat on this kind of development. And it's been, it's all been so secretive that it is, um, someone called it one of the most remarkable exhibitions of patriotic restraint in the whole course of the war. So the Germans had no idea it was coming. Uh, Hager being kept fully informed about this new Fahangled invention, and he was eager to get them in as soon as a sufficient number were ready. Um, but to waste that element of surprise would have been criminal by bringing in like one or two at a time in earlier battles. So it's in this battle in September at Fleur's Corselet that they make their debut. And it's pretty special the way they do it, actually. I mean, but it's, it's proper fantasy land, this machine. So it's an armoured vehicle which can withstand small arms fire and splinters from shells. It's got two six-pounder guns and several travelling machine guns on it and capable of simply rolling over the trenches, which obviously have proved this insurmountable barrier for the war so far. Uh, it can go through barbed wire entanglements, which, I mean, the, the lengths of barbed wire coiled up and put out in front of trenches for it to open able to just drive over them is incredible um and what it could do to things like enemy machine gun nests so something that would take out hundreds of your men because it was so well placed and well set up you could just roll over it in a tank so i mean it's quite exciting stuff to have and they've been told at this point that the strength of them lay in getting tanks close to the enemy and employing them in conjunction with the infantry so they're going to support each other but um as we'll see that they're not really good at that at the beginning but then you have to bear in mind this is the first day it happened so you ride motorbikes the first day you rode a motorbike were you any good no <laughs> one year later on your motorbike were you much much better at using it do you want the honest opinion no 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 i was i was i was much better a year later yeah exactly there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, no, on the first day, they didn't explode onto the battlefield and be amazing. But they, it was a solid start in this battle for obvious reasons. So, anyway, it was. It, I'll tell you about the secrecy because it's such a good story. So, they bought their tanks over, collected petrol, oil, water, rations and everything a few days before, reconnoitred the route they were going to take up to the trenches to see if there were any like massive shell holes that were going to cause problems or anything. They were going to have to go up in the dark and without the Germans hearing the engines or seeing them. So what they did was drive up, but as they did so, to mask the engines, there were aeroplanes flying up and down the German front lines to make a noise, to distract them. And then people would walk behind and the tracks the tank left. They would flatten the ground again so that no one could see. And then they were sort of under tarpaulins and branches and everything. And there were accounts of men walking past this big lump covered in material and being like, oh, what's under there? um, The effects of them tactically in battle. Like I said, the first day you rode a motorbike, you weren't amazing at it. And they're not amazing on the first day. But one thing they did was scare the living shit out of the German. We looked at some uh, tanks from D Company, which were going into the village of Fleurs, which is where it's like 41st Division and the New Zealanders around that area. But um, imagine this thing. So the Germans have never, ever seen anything like it. And there is this massive metal thing lurching up the high street or what's left of it belching fire and machine gun fire it weighs 28 tons trashing strong points and the remains of houses ambling along at like this ridiculous speed of about four miles an hour just wreaking havoc and the germans had no idea what they were looking at so they turned around and they ran so the victory in terms of morale the shock that they got when these things came over the horizon was probably more significant on that day than the actual tactical value. That's something that evolves very much over the rest of the war. I think I'd have done the same. I mean, never seeing a tank before and suddenly seeing this giant machine. Yeah, you know, and there's no said. like, there's no turret like on your World War II tank. So it's just like a big, um, kind of slightly wonky diamond shaped 30 odd ton monster coming towards you breathing fire it just it must have been i mean yeah they they just turned and ran a lot of them so it had arrived it was a new technology it had been hurried to the front it done okay um the beginning of the battle of flares course had generated various results highwood and martin puich next to it which were another one of these bones of contentions have fallen to the misery of august and early september and what i was telling you about how awful it was and how badly it was executed this was something to get a little bit excited about but the southern attack of the area was far messier and hadn't really worked this is another thirty thousand casualties as well this offensive this just carries on these casualties just carry on they don't they just don't stop do they No, and you're getting to the point now where, as a researcher, you're sitting there and you're thinking, just stop. But they don't, because there's still summer left to make an offensive. Um, And what you get is a gradual realisation that they're not going to win the war. They know this now. But 
they're going to have to fight again in 1917. And this gradual realisation that what you need to do now, because you're a mess, you've gone further forward at one end than you have at the other, which means now, um, if you picture right at the top where they haven't really gone anywhere, they're still fight it they're still attacking directly east towards the germans but where this line is bending up from the south where they are getting somewhere you've got people attacking east northeast even directly north carnage and what you need to do is get to some kind of settled position for the winter so that you can settle down without being under horrific fire from the enemy and prepare yourself to go again in 1917 so that's what they're doing wow i just I'm lost for words, really. That is why I'm not a military historian. Mm. So, so tell us, what do they do next? And um, it's not summer anymore, is it? Because, well, as we all know, conditions change. Yeah, so it gets wet and it gets cold and they carry on going with these piecemeal attacks to try better their positions which is ultimately the aim now but one thing you get is this kind of this is where the accounts come in of this clay-like mud and people suffering and uh, living in horrific conditions i mean there are instances of people falling into mud and drowning in it there are instances of people getting stuck in it and you tie a rope around them and try and drag them out and breaking their backs because that's the kind of, it's not the kind of mud you're thinking of unless you've been and tried to walk through it you don't really get it it's like clay so the weather's deteriorating they're still planning on making these smaller attacks to better their positions really for 1917 or to take like certain tactical objectives that have been a beef so far and that are standing in their way before the weather deteriorates so much that you physically can't carry on but arguably they should have stopped long before they did so by the time you get to the beginning of uh, November on the Somme the sickness is horrific so um, the battlefield is revolting some areas are actually just covered in bodies the stink is overwhelming decay mixed with substances such as chloride of lime thrown around to stave off disease worsened by bad sanitation overflowing latrines Men hadn't bathed in weeks. The smell of unwashed bodies mingling with cordite, gas, food and cigarettes. And obviously all of this disgustingness has brought rats, millions of them, bloated on an endless supply of food. Uh, you've got bodies now lying around that may in some areas have been lying around since the summer. So they've turned black and are basically doing what dead bodies do and are just purging all of their insides. It doesn't matter how many rats they shoot. One single rat can give birth to hundreds of offspring a year, all of whom then start scampering around the battlefield, spreading germs and contaminating supplies. Then there's the lice in the seams of their clothing. Washing that doesn't even help because the eggs are remaining in the seams. And as soon as the troops' body heat warms garments up, they hatch and the cycle begins again. Obvious medical connotations of constantly being in proximity to a pile of corpses, walking on them, sleeping with them. One Canadian soldier described them as inky black with a greenish tinge. They lay in rows on the parapet at the level of one's heads, stuck into walls, buried in the floor and felt like a cushion to walk on. There's body parts sticking out everywhere, floors carpeted with them in some places. It's, it's pretty horrific. So they're living alongside all of these corpses and try not to tread on them if at all possible, but there's no way to avoid them. Um, so you have trench fever is common with more than half a million men affected during the war it causes a high fever and pain. Recovery can take months. Some get it repeatedly unknown for most of the war that lice caused this, which some 6,000 men still claimed as the source of their disability in the aftermath of the conflict. Knits are common. A lot of men are shaving their heads to get rid of them. Trench foot, constant concern, which is a fungal infection, 
being caused by sitting in wet, muddy trenches. At its worst, this can turn gangrenous and require amputation. Uh, studies have even shown that many men might also have suffered from intestinal parasites due to a combination of dirty conditions and poor sanitation or caused living with and even eating the rats as well and we covered this poor 25 year old from near Guildford who enlisted in 1915 uh, went to war was with a field ambulance um, in the Teakvale sector and the conditions in which he was suffering in November were clearly unimaginable because all the nonsense being sent out to supposedly help the medical ranks do their work so on the subject of trans, uh, trench foot one one leaflet goes out to the Somme and this officer reads it out from a deputy director of medical services lecturing him on hygiene when in reality the men are sitting waist high in mud and had been living in inclement weather conditions for a month or more. So the the guy reading it out just went absolutely ballistic um, and it ended with an order to convey the inane drivel to the commanding officers of units that they had to deal with. The medical officer did just that word for word. We needed something to laugh at just then. So this poor guy, Sydney, is operating out of an advanced dressing station called Cab Stand in November. And uh, do you know what kills him? Have a guess at what kills this poor man. Um, something goes gangrenous. No. Pneumonia. Oh, my God. He's living in constant cold, wet for days, can't dry his clothes. He's been in a stretcher bearing teams, hunting the battlefield for wounded and evacuating them back for further treatment. So he's in an awful state. One group of bearers found a young German who smelled like a badger with somewhat superficial wounds who had nonetheless been stuck in no man's land for days and forced to eat biscuits and drink his own urine. The people they're picking up are riddled with disease and vermin so he just started to feel unwell on the 4th of november later that day he went to a casualty clearing station himself uh, with a temperature of 102 grew progressively worse and by the 6th he was running a fever of 104 and they couldn't bring it under control his heart began to fail and on the 9th of november of all the things that could kill a man on the song this poor 25 year old sydney vinyl dies of pneumonia so the conditions were as rabid in some case as the enemy by the end of this battle and yet still they went on do you know what you said um a little bit earlier about sleeping with corpses i, I can't get over that says the person who works on what she works i i can't get over that oh yeah there are so many accounts like literally I, the, when i say like walking them on like a carpet there's some that for the eaton book that i researched you don't have a choice they're everywhere i mean if you're going through one of them went up through one of these woods i've been telling you about in september to get ready for that main attack and there's no way to avoid it you've got no choice but to walk on them because they are everywhere and he just said it was like they were all squidgy and you had no choice but to walk on them because you you haven't been able to get out there and bury them all. So these are the conditions that you're forced to live in. I just want to make a comment because um, as historians, you know, for my own research, I can take a step back and I have a barrier. And the same for you, you know, you take a step back and you have this barrier. But when you're telling me about this, it's making me really queasy. You have I mean, no idea how many chocolate fingers I ate writing this book. I mean, when we sat down and we said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll write about one guy who died every day. It'll be really noble. And then you realised how futile it was and that actually you're writing about 141 guys out of like hundreds of thousands. And that actually you're not even scraping the surface. And as soon as you've killed one in the writing, you need to move on and kill another one. And then for every one we did put in, we looked at another 
poor 10 20 guys that didn't make it into the final book so it was nine months of nothing but i mean we still call it the book of death and it's the reason there had to be some survivors in the passchendaele one that we did afterwards because it was just too depressing and i basically sat there shoving chocolate fingers in my face and got really fat writing this book yeah it's um making me really queasy like i just said so yeah. i think and there's um, no there's no backing down from it like and the king goes out in the middle of this battle and he goes to look at a dugout and it's full of bodies and the prince of wales i think doesn't want to go in because you can smell it and yeah someone someone says to them you you can have a look but there's still some germans in there so it's not like you could even tidy it up for a visit of dignitary it's not that the king wanted that anyway he didn't want anyone wasting time on him when they should be doing their work he liked to just see people going about their work he didn't like them to interrupt them doing their work so he would have been pissed off if they cleared it out from anyway but yeah there's like so he's fully exposed to it all as well it's just it's everywhere and it's just you literally on that battlefield live lived with death for three and a half months there's an australian family that comes up in the book more than once doesn't it yeah so the australians arrived at the end of july and took part in the fighting at Poziers. So about the 23rd of July, they really started getting into it. And we had this family where we noticed that there were a load of sons that went to fight in the war from this tiny little town in New South Wales. And we were really hot on proportionately representing the colonial impact of the Battle of the Somme. So we knew the key dates that the Australians were there, knew the key dates that the Canadians were there, and there had to be a certain number scattered throughout the book that accurately represented like the percentage of colonial deaths and the Dominion contribution to the battle. And we noticed this family, and we noticed that one boy died at Poziers, and we noticed that one boy died all the way at the other end of the battle, and we thought that it would be apt if we had the the boy come in in July and then we told the rest of the stories and then we came back to that family later on and I could not find pictures of him anywhere and I could not find anything more than the service files and I just put this whingy little tweet up in no expectation of getting anywhere they said oh wouldn't it be amazing if we could find this family the Callaghan family in New South Wales who had Horace and Stanley who died in the Battle of the Somme because we desperately want to do their story properly thought no more of it until this 80 year old chap bob gets in touch with me on facebook and says i've just started this account because i heard that you're looking for me they were my uncles and it was like wow this guy he was i can't tell you he passed away not long afterwards but i can't tell you what a joy it was to know this man for the last few years of his life because he was brilliant he was a mucky old bugger and he was good fun and he was politically incorrect and he shared all of this stuff from his family with us and we have pictures of the family and we could tell the story of all the boys especially Horace and Stanley who died one in the summer and one at the other end in the misery of November and we knew Bob when his wife passed away and then he sadly passed away not long afterwards but it was just an absolute joy to find this man it was a, a one in six billion nearly shot sticking that tweet out there and hoping someone would notice it and yeah he was amazing and he gave us all the stuff we needed and still friends with his family on facebook and still misses quite rude posts and his mucky comments yeah rest in peace bob i hope you're up having a beer with your uncles now because you were awesome and we owe you big time for your contribution tell us 
how does it end they start, do start trying to do some work at the north end yeah. so uh, up in this section goff is in command who i mean he he got taken down in 1918 probably by that point that for what he was taken down for in 1918 wasn't his fault but some of the stuff that went before that he was responsible for just makes me angry. And you've got this scenario where the weather's deteriorating so that they're planning to do this one last attack on around the river Ankh at the top end of the battlefield. And uh, they keep putting it off and putting it off. And these guys that are waiting to fight it, not only are they suffering these conditions, they're like, they're getting amped up to go and fight and then told to stand down and then getting amped up and thinking about dying and then told to stand down. So eventually it gets to the point where like, you either just have to give up and say, this is where we're ending for the winter, or you just need to get on with it because you're driving these men insane. So it was finally authorised to go through in the middle of November. The weather conditions were absolutely horrific. Uh, So they start on the 13th, but they're supposed to push out towards some of this stuff that they should have caught on the very first day in July. I'm sure there are objectives there still um, that were supposed to be the 1st of July, but it's been so long since I wrote this book, someone will obviously correct me. Uh, So the main attack is north of the river, and it's the last, this is the last big push of the Somme campaign. Planning was intricate, deliberate, and yet it isn't great. Called off by about quarter past nine in the morning, I think. Goff apparently is reasonably pleased with the outcome of the day's fighting. Uh, in, though, in the eyes of those sitting there orchestrating it, it seems reasonable enough to attempt to finish off what they'd started. He doesn't see why they should stop when they've done all right, so they go forward again. And by the 18th... At which point men are attacking in sleet and snow. They just... That's when they finally, finally put this battle out of its misery. My personal opinion is that it goes on for weeks too long. During this, uh, So during the Battle of the Somme, casualties on all sides so that's britain her dominions france and germany add them all up more than a million men killed wounded taken prisoner missing um if they're missing and they're not a prisoner or wounded they're dead um but you may never see or hear anything from them again uh, despite everything that Hagen and his generals can fashion in like an attempt to settle the war on the western front the germans uh, they they really did come close to caving but they didn't we picked 141 to tell the story of this book um, and every one of them hurt writing them up. Um, we tried to go for people that weren't celebrities as well. We tried to go for the less, like people that hadn't been written up before or were less yeah. famous, but a human face on it. But yeah, it was, it was monstrous. Was that unnecessary? Was it an unnecessary bloodbath? No. I thought we'd be very popular with everybody. So I've said why we had to fight that battle. Um, I've also said how stupid it was in places, how it was conducted um, and how horrific the conditions were and how it should have been called off sooner than it was. But if you dispassionately talk about what they learned and took forward into 1917, they're learning lessons that will eventually help to win the war in 1918. But it just feels so heartless and callous to say, well, it's a learning curve and there are casualties as a result of that learning curve because they are so high and so brutal and so graphic. What wins it for us is the all-arms battle, the ability, the British ability to incorporate everything they've learned about artillery, about aircraft, about tanks, about infantry tactics across the four years of war and to pull all into action together with them supporting each other. And that's what they are beginning to learn during the Battle of the Somme.
do you know what even if it's it is an unpopular opinion that's what we like most about being historians though right at the end of the day what being unpopular having no, no friends eating no. chocolate <laughs> <laughs> no having, having an unpopular opinion that kind of pushes people to to bring out an argument or or to, you know yeah i mean from a purely military perspective no it wasn't a waste of time but from when a humanitarian perspective sat with someone's grandson and talked about how their granddad never came home it's hard to just write them off as being collateral damage but this is the point war is disgusting and horrible and brutal yeah. um and this i think is a glaring example of that that's um very insightful and i learned quite a lot so i really appreciate you um telling us about the song and the death toll and the casualties and basically the way they were living for months on end should we do something a bit more fun tomorrow and be a little bit less depressing for people yeah let's do it let's put night fallout join us tomorrow when tom cullen ed stoppard Julian Ovenden and Simon Merrills will be with us uh, and Eleanor Yanniger as well as our historian and we talked all about medieval stuff didn't we? It was absolutely epic. I think my favourite is uh, Tom Cullen and the Beef Carpaccio but um, close second is Simon and the suit of armour, the wet suit of armour but you'll have to join us tomorrow to find out exactly what it is that we're going on about. Uh, You can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, You have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.